You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Before we say anything about abortion, uh, I just want to acknowledge the deep pain that just bringing up that word, talking about it on a Sunday morning like this is going to cause for many in the room. And just to put those sort of, that, that sort of pain into an image, uh, the rap artist, Nicki Minaj, she illustrates this pain by, by, by just giving us kind of a window into her soul. At 15, she had an abortion. And that pain from that experience still oozes out of her today. In 2008, in her single autobiography, listen to the words of this song as she is asking the baby to forgive her. L- listen to these words. Please, baby, forgive me. Mommy was young. I adhered to the nonsense. Listen to people who told me I wasn't ready for you. But how would they know what I was ready to do? And of course, it wasn't your fault. It felt, it's like I, I, I feel it in the air. I hear you saying, mama, don't cry. Can't you see I'm right here? I gotta let you know what you mean to me. When I'm sleeping, I can see, I can see you in my dreams with me. I wish I could touch your face or just hold your little hand. If it's part of God's plan, maybe we can meet again. You can just hear the the agony, the deep pain, the sorrow embedded into those words. In, In a 2015 Rolling Stones interview, she went on to tell a reporter that that one moment in her life has haunted her all of her life. Now, my experience in walking beside people who are walking in that sort of pain and have had those sort of moments in their life, I think most of us, what we do is is we open out with the the, let's just bury it as deep as we can strategy. So, So let's just bury it and avoid it. And here's the only problem with burying our pain. It has a way of breaking out. It won't let itself be buried. It just, it, it just won't do it. Uh, probably the, the most significant, maybe if I were just to sum up my favorite moment in ministry over a decade and a half that I've had, came about six years ago when a person, a uh, couple that I just love, they were in my student ministry way back in the day. So this is six years ago now and they're married now. They called me and wanted to meet and I met with them and they just began to unwind some of their story all the way back into high school. They were dating. Uh, she got pregnant in high school. In their relationship, she got pregnant. And they decided to have an abortion. A lot of it was was him wanting that, but they both decided together they were gonna have an abortion. And she recounted just what she would call the nightmare of walking into that clinic alone and that being done. And how that is still eating at and just gnawing at her soul. Even, Even to that point, that was probably 10 or 11 years later, just gnawing at her and we cried together. And we grieved together. And they just had this beautiful moment of, of confessing all that to the Lord, just bringing all that out into the light where Jesus can then deal with that and the grace of God can then flow into that and, and soak into that. I mean, it was just this incredible moment with them of, of them having the courage to bring that pain out of the grave and allow Jesus to deal with it. And I'll never forget this moment of, we all kind of opened our eyes after they prayed and after they just kind of had that moment of confessing all that to the Lord, thanking him for his forgiveness in their life. And I said, I think the Lord wants you to hear these two words now. 
that these two words, I, I think the Lord wants you to hear him saying, what abortion? What abortion? I think that God just wants you to feel his forgiveness like that. And it was just this incredible moment of felt forgiveness. We cried some more together. We thanked God some more together. But, but that's what it looks like to drag that pain up and into the light. And it's so painful to do, to allow the grace of God to, to, to move into it, to, to help and to heal and to minister to our souls. And so before we do anything else, I just want to acknowledge that pain is in the room. If statistics hold true, one out of four ladies who are 40 and above have had an abortion. So, so that's not an, this sort of pain is not a, an abstract theoretical idea out there. That's a, that's a deep down here in this room sort of a thing. And so this morning, we just want to make ourselves available for, for, especially for you, men or women in the room that are still dealing with that pain. We're going to have people at our prayer table as we worship later in the service. We're going to have people behind that, that little curtain back there, behind the pipe and drape, who are just going to be standing there and available. If anybody this morning needs any sort of help, if you're wrestling through that and you just need people to help tend to your soul, we want to be so available for that this morning. So here's what, here's what I wanna to try to do over the next few minutes. I wanna to try to show you the heart of God in the Bible. I wanna to try to convince you of one thing the Bible shows us about God. And then we're gonna take a few minutes to apply that at the end. But here's the thing I wanna to try to show you. Really, I just wanna let the scriptures speak for themselves so that you can get a sense of how God presents himself to us in the Bible. And here's the summary of it, and then we'll try to make sense of it. Throughout the scriptures, what we see of God, how God reveals himself is as a God who is pro-life. He is pro-human flourishing. God is not content with your existence or my existence. He actually wants us to flourish as human beings. This is what God is after. This is who, who we see or what we see inside of God in the scriptures. So, so let me spend a few minutes just from Genesis to Revelation, help, helping raise this theme up so that we can see it. So let's start in Genesis chapter one. Genesis, the first open, you know, the first few chapters of Genesis are some of the most important in the Bible. Um, you know, in so many ways, they show us who God is, who we are, why we are, wh what's wrong with us, what's right with us. All of that is coming in the opening chapters of the Bible. And in Genesis 1, verse 1, it takes us all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we learn there that God created everything out of nothing. But then if you keep reading in Genesis, you see day, you know, 1 through 6 happening. And in day 1 through 6, God is taking everything that he's created and he's arranging it for man. He's making what he's created inhabitable for man. He's taking the land and he's preparing it for people to inhabit it where now they can flourish. He goes to great lengths. He's arranging the light. He's, he's separating the, the water from, from the land. He's doing all of these things in these days of creation so that when he places us in his creation, we're not just existing, but we actually have a place where we as human beings, people just like you and me can flourish. God goes to great lengths for that, to create a place where you could flourish. Then you get to day six, and this is what we read in verse 26. Genesis 1, 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
So God makes man in his own image. That's what we learned there in verses 26 and 27. He makes us in his own image. And in doing so, he bestows unique dignity upon every human being. There is no human being you will ever interact with that doesn't have the image of God imprinted in them, bestowing unique dignity on their life. And he says that we're his image bearers. So in a lot of ways, we are to be God's representatives. We're to be little pictures of God showing the world what God is like. That's what it means to be an image bearer. And then you go on to verse 28 and 29. And God blessed them. He's saying, let me show you what it's gonna look like for you to live well and for you to live into the life I've created for you. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth. I've given it to you and every tree with its seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. What do we learn from Genesis chapter one about God? We learned that God did not hold back in creation. He has given our first parents everything they needed to flourish, not just exist. He is after their flourishing. He wants them to live life and life to the full. That's what he wants for his image bearers. That's what he wants for for, for human beings, for his people. Then you get to Genesis chapter three. In Genesis three, our first parents rebelled against God And in that moment of rebellion, in that moment of sin, sin broke the beauty of God's place and the beauty of God's people. Now paradise, that's what God has created for man, paradise, right? That's Genesis one and two. The paradise that he created is now full of problems where it's hard for human beings to flourish. And now life and life to the full that's in Genesis one and two, now life is full of death. The stench and the aroma of death is everywhere. If you read forward from Genesis chapter four on, you see the aroma of death saturating every page in the scriptures. But then in in Genesis chapter three, verse 15, the pro-life heart of God is on display as he announces what most people call the first gospel. It's the first promise of God where he is saying, I'm gonna do something about my my paradise that now has problems. I'm gonna do something about your life that now has a lot of death in it. I'm gonna do something about this. This is what I'm gonna, gonna, gonna do about it. As he's cursing Satan, he says this to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, one born of the woman, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So so Jesus is announcing there's going to be one born of a woman who will crush the plans of Satan, one who will restore the paradise that's been lost, one who will put an end to death. That is the pro-life heart of God on display as he makes his first promise in the Bible. Now, it's interesting, throughout the Old Testament, you see the prophets yearning for and giving these prophetic pictures of God doing just this for God giving us back paradise, for God giving us back a life that's without death, a life where we can actually flourish and become everything that he's created us to be. You see this throughout the Old Testament. I wish I could read more of them. Let me just give you a couple of examples. This is Zephaniah chapter three, verses 19 and 20. Listen to to the prophet give this prophetic vision of what God is doing. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all of your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And listen to what God is going to do for every son and daughter of his. And I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. 
At that time, I will bring you in at, at, at the time when I gather you together for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. I, I love that last phrase, restore your fortunes. Do you, ever, do you ever feel like in life that you're just losing things? That things are being lost? God is saying there will be a day where everything that's been lost is going to be restored to you. Did, did you know that no one who follows God gets a raw deal in the end? No one's gonna get a raw deal in the end. And, and I love this, this statement. He says, I'm gonna change their shame into praise. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I'm gonna add a little praise onto your shame. I'm gonna sprinkle a little praise into your shame. That's not what he says. He says, no, I'm gonna take your shame and I'm gonna turn it into the opposite. You know those places that you're most embarrassed to talk about in your life? Those things you, you've done that you don't want anyone else to know about? He is saying, I'm gonna take those things, your shame, and I'm gonna turn those things into their opposite. I'm gonna turn those things into praise. Not just sprinkle a little praise onto it, but I'm gonna turn those into praise. This, this is what God is doing for every son and daughter of his. This is, this is the future he's creating for every son and daughter of his. You, you see it again in Jeremiah chapter 31. Listen to how Jeremiah says it. They shall come and sing aloud on the height of Zion and they shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord. They shall be radiant over the goodness of the Lord, over the grain, over the wine, over the oil, over the young of the flock and the herd, and their life shall be like a watered garden. Who wouldn't sign up for that life? Their life is going to be a watered garden and they shall languish no more. No more languishing, that's what's in the future. This is the sort of life that God's promised for his sons and daughters. No more despair. No more Monday mornings, right? No more Monday morning blues. The life that God is promising is a life where people like you and me can flourish, where we'll be a watered garden, where we can live life and life to the full, full of hope, full of enjoyment. You get to verse 13. Then shall the young women rejoice in the dance and the young men and the old shall be merry. I will turn their mourning into joy. Not just sprinkle a little joy onto their morning. I'm going to take their morning and turn it into the exact opposite. I'm going to turn it into joy. And then he goes on, I will comfort them and I will give them gladness for sorrow. I will feast the souls of the priests with abundance and my people shall be satisfied with my goodness, declares the Lord. Who doesn't want that life, Right? That's a life we all want. What God is promising is sorrow changed to gladness. He's promising that God's people will be in God's place and God's people will forever be satisfied with God's goodness. This is the sort of life that he has promised us. This is a pro-life God promising us a pro-life place where people like you and I will not just exist, but will flourish. That's what God is up to. This, this is the God of the scriptures. Then you get to the New Testament and Jesus arrives. He, he is the promised one who is going to enact all this, to begin the process of reversing the curse. And do you remember how Jesus is introduced? And, and at some point you ought to do a, a word study on the word life in the book of John. It's really amazing to see. But, but listen to how Jesus is introduced in the gospel of John. John 1, 4. In him was what? Life. And the life was the light of men. This is the way Jesus self-identifies, or one of the ways. John 6, 48, I am the bread of what? 
of life. John 14, six, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. So Jesus is clarifying that there's only one way to life. There's just one. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You know, one of the things I love about God is he loves us enough to tell us the truth. Don't we appreciate that about God? And what he's saying here is there's, in the end, there's only two options. Either we believe in Jesus and receive life, what Jesus is, we receive him and life, or we reject Jesus and we receive ruin. Those are the only two options. But John tells us, this is why Jesus came, so that we could have life. John uh, 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal what? Life. This is the reason Jesus came was to say, I want to give you me. I want you to have my life. I want you to flourish. I want you to be everything that I've created you to be. If you want one way to just sum up the entire storyline of the Bible, it could go like this. Our first parent's sin, Genesis 3, brought us death, but Jesus' death brings us life. That's the story of the Bible. Our first parent's sin introduces and brings death, the aroma of death everywhere, but Jesus died so that our death could turn into life, so that we could then have life. This is what Jesus died to bring. John 10, 10, listen to what Jesus says. This is why I've come. This is what I'm doing for you. He says, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. But here's why I have come. I have come that you may have what? Life and, and to have it abundantly. Not just exist, but that you would flourish. This is the pro-life heart of God. And you see that pro-life heart of God culminate in, in Revelation chapter 21, the first few verses of that chapter. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Death will finally be defeated. Death will be no more. Neither will there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That is the pro-life heart of God. 17 years ago, Laura and I were dating and she had just read a book called Redeeming Love. And she looked at me and said, Rodney, you have got to read this book. I took one look at the front cover and said, there is no way I'm reading that book. <laughs> that looks way too much like a romance novel. And, uh, and then this summer, I did. I read it 17 years later. And, <laughs> and it blew me up. You should read it. You should read it. My favorite scene in the book is when Michael, who in so many ways portrays Jesus, he's a good image bearer. He's showing us what God is like. Uh, Michael takes Sarah, who is a broken beauty like us, the image of God just marred so, so badly in her. It's there, but it's just marred so badly. He, he takes Sarah in the middle of the night, walks her in the middle of the night up on this mountain. Love this scene. And she has no idea where they are, what they're doing. She can't see anything. 
And they get to the top of the mountain and it's still pitch black and they just wait there and they wait there and they wait there. And finally the sun starts to come up and he wakes her up and she now looks out and she's got this beautiful panoramic view of what's before her, this incredible valley, this incredible landscape before her. And then Michael whispers in her ear, this is the life I wanna give you. This is the life I wanna give you. And I think what God does in the Bible is he walks us up to the mountaintop and he sits with us there. And the Bible brings the light up so that now we can see this panoramic picture of what God is promising us, what God wants for us, the sort of human flourishing that he desires for us. And then we, we get a chance to see it in the scriptures, in Zephaniah and Jeremiah and Revelation 20. We get a chance to see it and then he whispers in our ear, this is the life I want for you. This is what I'm, this is what I've died to do. This, this is what I've died to accomplish. I spent, I spent a day on the cross and three days in the, in the tomb so that you could have this life. That's the life I want for you. So this is God. He is a pro-life God, not just for our existence, but for, for human flourishing for life and life to the full. So then the question becomes, as his image bearers, how do we bear the image of God? How do we do that? And I wanna give you two ways that I think we can bear the image of God, that we can be good image bearers, that we can show the world a picture of what God is like. Here's the first way. We image God by being pro-life inside the womb, by being for life, for, the, for human life to flourish inside the womb. This is one of the ways that we can image God, show God, is by bestowing dignity upon human beings in the womb in the most vulnerable of situations. That's one of the ways that we can show a picture of the heart of God, his pro-life heart. When it comes to abortion, the statistics are, are virtually unbearable. I mean, they're, they're just, they're, it's almost impossible to comprehend. I don't normally quote Stalin, but I'm going to. <laughs> Stalin said the death of a million is a statistic, but the death of one is a tragedy. And you're about to hear statistics that are just so big that it just feels like an, a kind of an abstract fact up there. It's really hard to make it down here. But just try, try to think human beings when you think about these numbers. Since 1973, there have been roughly 60 million babies aborted. 60 million, how do you even comprehend 60 million? That would be the 23rd largest country in the world. 60 million babies. That equates into roughly 2,600 abortions a day. That, that shows us that the most dangerous place in America to live is inside the womb. In the state of New York, 33% of all pregnancies are aborted. 30, like if you're a baby in New York and you're in the womb, one out of three babies are going to, to, to not survive that. 33% of all pregnancies are aborted in the state of New York. It's impossible not to see the racial overtones with abortion. In the US, black children are aborted at three times the rate of white children. Hispanic children are aborted at 1.5 times the rate of white children. And I agree with John Piper when he says this, the de facto effect, 
The de facto effect of putting abortion clinics in the urban centers is that the abortion of Hispanic and black babies is more than double their percentage of the population. Call this what you will, but when the slaughter has an ethnic face and the percentages are double that of the white community and the killers are almost all white, something is going on here that ought to make the lovers of racial equality and racial harmony wake up. I mean, it is, it's almost impossible to fathom there have been, since 1973, almost 17 million African-American babies aborted. That is 40% of the current American population of African-Americans. 40%. I mean, the, the, the loss of life is, I, I find it hard to even make real to us this morning because the statistics are just so big and so wide. Now, it makes me ask the question, how is this possible? How, how can 60 million babies be aborted since 1970? How is that possible? And I think this is where we all need to take a mirror and hold it up to our own hearts and, and let it show us something about ourselves. The act of abortion begins with the heart of abortion. That, that's where it begins. The act, like actually... Committing an abortion, doing an abortion, that begins with the heart of abortion. And the heart of abortion is a heart that is saying this about the world and to the world. It is self above all. It's me before you. That's the heart of abortion that, that creates the atmosphere where, where this sort of a thing can go on. The act of abortion begins with the heart of abortion. And who in here can't see that heart in them? Me above you, self above all. Who in here can't see that in, in, in ourselves? I mean, east of Eden, that, that sort of self above all is the default human setting. It's how we're all born to see the world. Me above you is so natural to us. We don't even have to think about it to think that way. Uh, on Friday night, I was talking to uh, Laura and I, we just uh, eating dinner with our kids and we just talked about abortion on Friday night. And at one point, Caleb looked at me and he said, Dad, have you ever been a part of an abortion? And I said, Caleb, I haven't. I haven't actually committed the act of abortion. But Caleb, it grieves me to look back over my life and see the heart of abortion just be the, the motto of my life for so much of it. And Caleb, I'm pretty sure that at least for the first half of my life, had I been presented with the, with the circumstances, I probably would have said yes to one. That, that me above you, that self above all, like the first way we can fight for, for life inside the womb is by fighting against that self above all setting that we have a way of defaulting to, that we have a way of like naturally gravitating to. To, to fight against that is the first way that we can fight to be pro-life. The act of abortion begins with the heart of abortion. And the heart of abortion creates a culture of abortion. This is how 60 million can happen. The, the, the act of abortion begins with the heart of abortion and the heart of abortion creates the culture of abortion. And that culture of abortion is a culture where kids are devalued. Where, where, you know, when we see kids, we stop seeing them like the Bible does as a blessing and we begin to see kids more as a burden. Like they're the obstacle to really what I wanna do in life, to how I wanna spend my money, to my career, to what I want. That They're just a burden that's in the way of what I want in life. That, that is such the cultural ethos around kids. 
The culture of abortion is this culture where kids are devalued, especially kids with special needs. Let me just give you one more statistic that just rips my heart out to even say. 90% of babies with Down syndrome never make it out of the womb. 90%. I mean, that's like one of those statistics that, that it helps me understand why Genesis 6 happens. Why God says, you know what? I'm just gonna start over. I mean, it's those sort of things that I think give us, give us evidence of why it is that God would do that, right? But it's this sort of a heart of abortion, creating a culture of abortion that makes the act of abortion possible. And it's that culture and that heart that all of us need to hold in front of us and ask hard questions. Is that my heart? Where, where do I see that in me? And, and I wanna just, pre, just hold before you like, I want you to wrestle with what, what is it that God would want you to, to do to, to fight against and to fight for life in the womb, to be good image bearers of his, right? Fighting for life inside the womb, being pro-life for those inside the womb. And I don't, I don't intend really this morning to try to give you all the options of things you could do. I, I wanna mention two things though. One, I just wanna invite you to pray for this. Pray that we would have a spiritual breakthrough in our country. Like when I think about this, this issue, it is obvious to me that we're no longer like talking rationally about it. It has devolved into crazy. I mean, when you, the conversation around this particular issue, I think makes us all very aware that we're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. That's what's going on here. So just let's pray, pleading with the Lord to do something. And then let's wrestle with what part he would want you to play, me to play. I don't know what that is for you, but what would it look like for you to embrace? I'm going to be pro-life for those inside the womb, to be a voice for those who have no voice. What, what would that look like for you? What would God want from you? Pray, ask the Lord to clarify that. I just have so much confidence that when we ask the Lord those things, that he will show us what he wants. So, so let's pray. Secondly, I just want you to consider Christ's pregnancy centers. In so many ways, they are on the front line of this issue for fighting for life inside the, the womb, for rescuing babies. They offer counsel, they offer sonograms, and Jesus really does use them to rescue babies. Uh, we were talking to Alicia Woodall. She works down at First Look Pregnancy Center in uh, Waxahachie, and they do such good work down there. And she, I asked her, last year, tell me some of the results and how things went. And she said last year that 124 people walked in thinking, I'm gonna get an abortion, this is the direction we're heading. And they walked out saying yes to life. 124, that's good work, isn't it? That, that's work that needs to be done. She also told me about a story of a mom and dad walking in and they were split on the decision. One wanted to have an abortion, the other one didn't. And they were just wrestling through, what, what are they gonna do? And uh, they saw a sonogram and they both said yes to life. And then the guy said, I want a spiritual mentor. So they paired him up with the spiritual mentor. He asked about Jesus. They got to talk about Jesus and the guy gets saved. Walking out of there, that family had two people saved. That is good work, isn't it? So just consider how God might wanna use you in places like that on the front lines for the fight for babies that are inside the womb. So this is one way we can, we can image God, by being pro-life for those in the womb. Here's the second way we can image God, is by being pro-life for those outside the womb. By being pro-life for those outside the womb. To image God, we have to be more than anti-abortion. We actually have to be pro-life. 
Now think about the heart of God. God did not look at us and say, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna be just fine if you just exist. If you can just exist, then we're gonna be okay. That's not the heart of God. God said, no, I'm gonna do everything that's needed to be done and I'm gonna keep doing it, not just so you can exist, but so that you can have life and life to the full, so that you can flourish as a human being forever. That's what I'm about. And if we're going to image forth God, we've got to do more than embrace being pro-life for those inside the womb. We also have to embrace being pro-life for those outside the womb. Now, why is that important that we embrace that? Not just for those inside the womb, but for those outside the womb. Let me condense it down this way. The worse life is outside the the womb, the more dangerous life becomes for those inside the womb. Now think about what I'm trying to say there. The worse life is for those outside the womb, the more dangerous life becomes for those inside the womb. The harder and more helpless you feel in your life, the more likely it is when you have an untimely pregnancy to choose abortion. Now, when you just lay over poverty, over the abortion issue, it's amazing what you find. For instance, 75% of abortion patients in 2014 were born or were were in poor or low income situations. I mean, think about that. 75% in 2014, 75% of those who had an abortion were in poor or low income situations. So what should that lead us to think and do? Should lead us here. One way to fight for the life of a baby inside the womb is to fight for the life of the mother or the father who's living outside the womb. Are we seeing the connection there? If we wanna be pro-life, it means both in. One way we fight for the baby inside the womb is by fighting for the life of the mother and father who's living outside the womb. So what does it look like for us to be pro-life outside the womb? Let me preface by saying this first before I answer that question. There are some of you who you walked in here today and your life is so difficult today, you can't even see straight. Like you stumbled in and just the fact that you made it was a miracle. If that's you, I want you to ignore what I'm about to say. And this morning, I just want you to receive from God, to be refreshed by God today, to let his grace sweep into your life And for you just to know God loves you and cherishes you and wants to refresh you. And we expect nothing of you other than you to have a season where you can be refreshed by God. So if you're in that situation, I want you to know that. Now for those who that's not you, you came in and you're okay this morning. What does it look like for us to be pro-life for those who are outside the womb? Here's what it looks like. It looks like us caring for the vulnerable. That's what it looks like, us caring for the vulnerable. James 1.27 says it well, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Orphan is one category of the most vulnerable, right? So if we're gonna be, if we're gonna be more than anti-abortion, we're actually gonna get to pro-life. It means we have to get to a place where we're pro-adoption, right? that we're pro-fostering, that we're pro-stepping into the moment when a, when a mom says, I'm gonna do the most selfless and loving thing that I've ever done in my life. I'm gonna place this baby that I can't care for, for adoption. I'm not going to abort. I'm gonna choose life, but I know that I can't care for him. So I'm gonna entrust him to someone else. 
If we want that to happen, we've got to be a people who are willing to say, and I'll step into that moment and help. I'll step into that moment and provide a safe place for that little child to grow up and flourish as a human being. Right, so if we're, gonna be, if we're gonna be against abortion, we have to be for adoption. Laura and I have been living this for the last several years. Um, we have been fostering. We've had five placements and it's been one of the most difficult things we have ever done in our life and one of the greatest things we have ever done in our life. And I don't know what that looks like for you, but I'm just asking for you to open up your heart and ask the Lord, what, what would you want from us? How, how can we enter into that? What would it look like for us to enter into that? Our orphan care team would love to talk to you. If that's something percolating in you, then that team is there to help people in our church family walk forward in that in a healthy, great way. So, so let us know. We would love to begin that journey of walking beside you. But that's one of the ways. It is by, by orphan care, uh, adoption, fostering. But Orphans and widows in this passage is really a representative category. It's a way for James to say, look at the most vulnerable around you. That's what pure and undefiled religion looks like. It looks like you moving into those places. It looks like you being aware of the most vulnerable. Like you having your eyes open so you can see where is vulnerability? Where are people in distress? Where are people in need of help? And then it looks like us moving into those moments, making their problems our problems. That's what it looks like. Us moving into a distressed situation, a hard situation, making their problems our problems so that we can actually be used by God to help. Years ago, we took a group of students, this is when I was doing student ministry, up to uh, kind of a national, kind of a youth rally type thing. And the, the, I'll never forget an illustration the guy used that, that night. He was talking about being on vacation with his family and uh, they were at this hotel and he and his son, who was eight or nine years old, was walking from the hotel onto the beach. And as soon as they hit the sand, out of his peripheral vision, he's got his child right here, out of his peripheral vision, he looks over there and he sees a man with one leg on crutches, you know, he, he, crutching in the sand, try, trying to move forward, and he falls and stumbles and falls. And when he sees it out of his peripheral vision, He's walking, he grabs his child's head, his eight or nine-year-old boy's head, and turns this way and begins walking this way. And his son saw it, though. And his son breaks out of the grip of his dad, runs over to this man, and begins trying to help him up. But he's like eight years old, and he can't do it. He's not strong enough to help the man up. And all of a sudden, these adults around begin to see this eight-year-old boy trying to help this man up. They then jump in and help the guy up and get him up and going and on his way. And I think in that story, there's just something that's just so like us, isn't it? That, that we're living and we know that there's problems and situations out there. But what we all want to kind of do is just keep them in our peripheral vision. And then if one gets to be really overt, let, let's just do this. Let's just turn our head and walk away so we can pretend like we don't see it. I mean, th this is what I want to do. I don't really want to make another person's problem my problems. I kind of have enough as it is. Right? This is how we all are interacting with the world. But we can't do that and image God. To image God well, it looks like us not turning the other way and avoiding the problem as if it doesn't exist. It looks like us actually moving toward the problem, making that problem our problem so we can help. That's what it looks like. And I just wonder how many of us need to start thinking and seeing the world that way. 
I'll end here. Tony Campolo, he is kind of a national speaker, sociologist, professor sort of a guy. And he was at one point in Hawaii and he was speaking at a conference. And when he finished and after he'd already kind of shaken hands and hung out with all the people that were in the conference, it was 3 a.m. and he was starving to death. And uh, so he is in Honolulu on the main strip and he's like, I've got to find a place to eat. So he finds like just your typical kind of greasy spoon place. He walks in, you know, you can kind of picture the thing. It's got kind of a counter. It's got all these bar stools there. He, he plops down on one bar stool. Harry is the guy that's going to help him. Harry has an apron on that's got like three layers of grease just caked onto it. It's like that sort of a joint. So he's sitting down. It's 3 a.m. in the morning. He orders uh, some food. He's eating. And all of a sudden, eight prostitutes walk inside of the diner. And they surround him sitting on the bar. He's just in the middle of this crew of eight ladies in, you know, on these bar stools. And he's just, you know, you can just picture the moment. He is overhearing just the crudest of conversations, just heartbreaking. And at one point, one of the ladies looked at the other ladies and said, do you know what? My birthday's tomorrow. It's gonna be my 39th birthday tomorrow. And some of the other ladies looked back at her and said, why should we care if it's your birthday? No one cares about your birthday. Do you want us to buy you a cake? We're not gonna get you a cake. Do you want us to buy you gifts? We're not gonna buy you gifts. Nobody cares about your birthday. And, and you can just tell she was so hurt. She gets up and she, she walks out. And as she's walking out, she just turns back to her friends and says, man, why are y'all so mean? A few minutes later, they all leave and uh, they finished eating and, Tony is just sitting there and he looks at Harry and says, Harry, do they come in here every night? And Harry said, yep, it's like clockwork. They're here every night at 3.30. They're gonna be here every night. And Tony looked back at Harry and said, Harry, what do you think about throwing Agnes, that was her name? What do you think about throwing Agnes a birthday party tomorrow? And Harry said, you know what? I think that'd be great. Let's do it. So Harry owned the cake. He baked the cake. He got all that ready. Tony got some presents. He got the decorations. He comes back at 2.30 the next morning. The cake's ready. He has decorated this place out. I mean, from, from one end to the other, it is going to be a birthday bash. Right in the middle of the room is happy birthday, Agnes. I mean, he's got the thing set up. And sure enough, at 3.30, all eight ladies come into the door to the biggest surprise of their life. Happy birthday. And they all start singing and Agnes is just in a pool of tears. You can just imagine. And after they sing, um, Harry brings the cake over and he says, it's time for you to blow it out. And she blows out the candles and Harry says, you want me to cut the cake? And she says, no, I, if it'd be okay, I don't want you to cut the cake. Nobody's ever made a cake for me. And I would love, if y'all don't mind, I, I just live like two blocks down the road. I, I would love just to take that cake back to my apartment and I'd like to save that cake. So they, she walks out, they let her out. She, she goes back to her apartment to put the cake in. And then you just got, got the awkward silence of like, the birthday girl is now left and what do you do? And Tony just says, how about we pray? So he prays with the whole, whole room. And by the way, one, one note I left out is word had gotten out that a party was gonna be happening. And so the whole room was filled with other prostitutes who had come to celebrate Agnes's birthday. And so he prays with this whole room. 
and when all that's over, the, the party settles down, everybody leaves, and it's just Harry and Tony left. And Harry looks at Tony and says, Tony, and he almost in a gruffled, minorly offended way, he says, you didn't tell me you were a pastor. And Tony looks back and says, you know, I'm, I'm not a pastor. But I go to a church, but I'm not, I'm not a pastor. And Harry said, well, what church do you go to then? And Tony, just in a moment, it was probably just God speaking through him, said, I go to a church that at 3.30 in the morning will throw birthday parties for prostitutes. And Harry looked back at him and said, there's no way there's a church like that. But if there was, that's the church I'd wanna go to. And I don't know about you, but that's the church I wanna go to. Isn't it the church you wanna go to? I mean, that's the sort of church that Jesus died to create. That he gave his life to make. Will you pray with me? And I just wanna give you a second to allow the spirit of God to press into you the things that would be most helpful this morning. To wipe away the things that wouldn't be. Why don't you just ask the Lord, what do, what do you want me to do with this God? What do you want me to do? For some of us this morning, we need to be confronted with the words of Jesus. He loves us enough to tell us the truth. We receive Jesus and in doing that receive life or we reject Jesus and in doing that receive ruin. And I just wonder how many of us need to make this decisive step toward Jesus where we are turning from our sin, throwing our life upon his perfect life, his death and resurrection, asking God to rescue and redeem us. How, how many of us need to do that? God doesn't want you to exist, but to have life and life to the full. And that is only found in Jesus. For others of us, we need to wrestle with God. How can I be pro-life like you? How can I be a faithful image bearer? So God, would you talk to us and speak to us? Would you show us? God, would you lead us? God, would you make us into a church like that? That's that pro-life, that for human beings flourishing? Oh God, would you do it? And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.